Turn with me in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 9. And this last of our message, we call it God or giving. It really is more about God and generosity. For those of you who are wondering if I'm going to be doing a teaching on, on tithing, I'm not. You can come Wednesday night and I'm going to discuss, is tithing a New Testament concept? So that's where you want to be heading next Wednesday night. But today we want to talk about the broader context of the life that God has called us to is a life of generosity. And just to kind of set the context a little bit for this passage, uh, the Apostle Paul was in the city of Ephesus writing to the church in Corinth. He had started the church around 50 AD, planted a church in Corinth. And Corinth was a very wealthy and prosperous city, also one of the most morally challenged cities in the ancient world. But yet the, the church had grown and, and increased in tremendous ways. Many had come to be saved. In fact, the Lord told Paul in the book of Acts that when he got there, he said, continue here because I have many people in this city. And that proved to be the case. But now Paul is actually writing them regarding a prearranged offering. The church in Jerusalem, which became the center of the church initially, had now become the center of persecution. We often talk about Roman persecution of the church, but really the first persecutors were the leaders, the religious leaders and the temple leaders in Jerusalem. And so at this point, there's a Gentile church is spreading and many of them were prospering financially because of the overall wealth of the Roman Empire. The Christians in Jerusalem were suffering. They were being excommunicated from the synagogues. They were being kicked out of their jobs. Uh, they were literally beginning to slip into poverty under intense persecution. So Paul felt led of the Holy Spirit to have the Gentile churches take an offering and deliver it to relieve the hardships of the church in Jerusalem. Later on in Acts, we read that Paul goes to Jerusalem with this offering. He himself is arrested and spends the next year, four years of his life as a prisoner, first in Caesarea Philippi, or excuse me, Caesarea Maritima on the coast of Israel, and then being shipped off to Rome to stand before the emperor where he eventually was exonerated, but that's a whole other story to go into. So that's kind of the context behind this passage, so that now that you understand all of that background history, would you stand with me as we begin by reading this passage, and hopefully as we do so, it'll kind of make a bit more sense to you and not just come out of left field. He begins in verse 1, 2 Corinthians chapter 9. He says, There is no need for me to write to you about this service to the saints, for I know your eagerness to help, and I have been boasting about it to the Macedonians, that would be those who lived in Philippi and around there, telling them that since last year, you in Achaia, which also refers to Corinth, were ready to give, and your enthusiasm has stirred most of them to action. But I am sending the brothers in order that our boasting about you in this matter should not prove hollow but that you may be ready, as I said you would be. For if any of the Macedonians come with me and find you unprepared, we, not to say anything about you, would be ashamed of having been so confident. So I thought it necessary to urge the brothers to visit you in advance and finish the arrangements for the generous gift you had promised. Then it will be ready as a generous gift, not as one grudgingly given." Remember this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows generously will also reap generously. 
Each man should give what he has decided in his heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you so that in all things at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. As it is written, he has scattered abroad his gifts to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. Now he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will also supply, increase your store of seed and will enlarge the harvest of your righteousness. You will be made rich in every way so that you can be generous on every occasion. And through us, your generosity will result in thanksgiving to God. This service that you perform is not only supplying the needs of God's people, but is also overflowing in many expressions of thanks to God. Because of the service by which you have proved yourselves, men will praise God for the obedience that accompanies your confession of the gospel of Christ and for your generosity in sharing with them and with everyone else. And in their prayers for you, their hearts will go out to you because of the surpassing grace God has given you. Thanks be to God for his incredible or indescribable gift. Let's begin with prayer. Father, we ask as we begin to explore this passage, its meanings, its implications, its message to us personally, that your Holy Spirit would be our guide, that you would be truly our teacher that I know that, Lord, I have the opportunity to say a lot of words, but only your Holy Spirit can make truths come alive and live and reign inside of us. And so, Lord, that's why we're here. We want to be children of the truth. We pray for your grace in this, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. From heaven's perspective, heaven's point of view, there are essentially two worlds. And the question you and I have to ask ourselves is, which one do we live in or maybe mostly live in? Because I think if most of us were honest, we'd say we kind of struggle between those different worlds on an ongoing basis. Basically, we have what is called the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven. In other words, that which is under the authority of God. And at this present time, that kingdom of God is not a geographical location, but it is a location of saints and souls and individuals. That whoever Christ is Lord and Master and King of their life, that is the kingdom of God. There is a day in biblical prophecy when the earth will once again be the kingdom of God and Christ will reign physically upon the earth. But that day is not yet here. And right now his kingdom is you and his kingdom is me because he is our kingdom and hopefully we are struggling to live in submission and yieldedness to his will. But according to the book of Revelation in chapter 11, there's another kingdom, an opposing kingdom called the kingdom of this world. The first kingdom, the kingdom of God, is ruled by Jesus. In fact, it says in Ephesians 5, 5, that it's the kingdom of Christ and of God. So that anyone who is under the rulership of Jesus Christ and submission to God the Father is again part of that kingdom. But the second kingdom, the kingdom of this world, 
is controlled by someone whom Paul described, interestingly, in Corinthians and Ephesians as being the God of this age. And by the word age, he's talking about the, the philosophical belief system of an era. In other words, there is a God that people follow. It's really not so evident to them necessarily in the form of an idol or an image as it was in Paul's day, but it is a basic set of beliefs about reality so that the God of this age, whether it be scientism or some other philosophical perspective, is not simply an ideology, but it actually is a personality. And this is one of those points where there's a, a separation in what people believe today. There are many people believe that there is evil in the world, but they don't believe that evil is embodied in a character called Lucifer or the devil. And to them, I can only say this. The Bible is very clear that there is this embodiment, this personality, this malevolent being that is really a force for evil in the world that even though we may look at human behavior as having a penchant or a proclivity to behave in bad ways, but we also have one that James identified as being the tempter, that one who came to Jesus in the wilderness and tempted him to dishonor and disobey and turn his back on God, his Father. And he's the same one who is at work in the world today. That's why he called him the God of this age. He referred to him in the Corinthians as the ruler of the kingdom of the air, which means the word air there refers to the atmospheric or the earthly atmosphere that we live in. In other words, he really does rule over the planet so that when some people say, I can't believe that there's a loving God because of all the evil that he allows in the world, what they're overlooking is that he is not the proponent of that evil, but that the God of this world, the, this, the ruler of this atmosphere is the one who is promoting death and plunder and all the horrible things that we see taking place on the earth. It has nothing to do with God. And that what God says is, I'm allowing this that men might sorrow and turn to God in their desperation, a principle that was taught really quite repeatedly in the Old Testament in particular, that God would allow oppressions to come upon a people until they humbled themselves and cried out for his deliverance. And so it is even today that God intervenes as we cry out to him. In fact, Paul goes on to say in the Ephesians that he is the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. Disobedient to what? Disobedient to the law of God. Disobedient to the truth of God. That, that there's a spirit that's active there so that when we see bad actors, bad characters in the world, we have to understand that it's not just that they themselves are bad, but there is a spiritual dimension behind their badness. There is a spiritual impulse that drives them to do and to say and to behave in the way that they do. Now, these two kingdoms have different populations, as I've already mentioned. I mean, the kingdom of God is populated by the sons of God, the saints, the redeemed of the Lord, you and me, hopefully. He refers in 1 Thessalonians 5, 5, that they are the sons of light, the sons of the day, who walk in the light even as he is in the light. In other words, we're not afraid to have God expose who we are because if he finds sin, we can be cleansed through confession and repentance, but also because we have been freed from having to skulk around in dark places trying to hide the facts of who we are. 
There's a freedom that that light brings and a healing that it brings. And he says, secondly, that as a consequence of that, we have fellowship with one another. That light brings us into this vital connectedness with one another. Whether we appreciate it, recognize it, or even invest in it, it's a, it's a factual reality that we are in this fellowship, this community that the Holy Spirit is breeding amongst us as God's people. And we have that with one another. Why? He goes on to say, because the blood of Jesus purifies us from all sin. The blood of Jesus purifies us. That's who is part of the kingdom of God. But the others who are the kingdom of this world are not so wonderfully described. In fact, Paul goes on to say, they belong to the night and to the darkness. Their minds have been blinded so that they cannot see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. In fact, John, in his first letter, would simply say, they do not know where they are going because the darkness has blinded them. And that doesn't mean that men don't have a plan and a program that they're working but Jesus just simply described this way. He says, if the light that is in you is actually darkness, how great is that darkness? And so you find that there are people who are moving in various directions with great energy, but in terms of really having a clue where they're going, they may think they do, but they are blindly heading to the cliffs because as Paul would finally say to Timothy in, the, in his last letter, that these people have been taken captive by the devil to do his will. And it's the saddest thing in the world because not knowing that they are being dominated and controlled by these spiritual entities that have only one interest and that is to destroy them, to crush and destroy them, to ruin their life. And so here we are, we're in this dynamic where we can choose to be part of the kingdom of God, where we have the grace of God, the power of the Spirit, the angels protecting us and guiding us and leading us in our life's journey, or we can reject the gospel of Jesus Christ and just simply by default become part of this kingdom of darkness and await what fates shall befall us which are described in horrific terms. But we also find that these kingdoms have different mantras. You know what I mean by a mantra? Not necessarily in a religious sense. The idea that you have certain things that you say that characterize who you are, how you live your life. And for those of us who are in the kingdom of God, the words that most characterize our lives in this world were those of Jesus, at least quoted in Acts 3, 20, verse 35, where Paul tells us that Jesus said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. That is more blessed to give than it is to receive. Now, if you think for even a partial moment about that phrase, that's pretty counterintuitive. You know, most people don't wake up on Christmas morning, especially my grandkids. They don't wake up on Christmas morning thinking about, oh, I'm so anxious to give you my gift. We're basically, you know, like a pack of dogs and a three-legged cat. We want to fall in those packages and rip them open and find out what goodies are inside. And I'm just hoping against all hope that this year it'll be different. It won't be a rock or a piece of coal like it always is. But the point is, we, we, we have our intuitive response to life in general is to get. 
I mean, we, we really think about that. We, we are pleased when we are the object of the gift. And yet Jesus said, but if you want to live a deeper life, a life that is much more satisfying and meaningful, it is greater in blessing to be the one who is the giver than it is to be the getter. Now, in contrast, the kingdom of this world is all about getting that's where the draw is. I mean, when Lucifer says to Jesus, if you will worship me, I will give you all of the kingdoms of the world. What he is trying to do is induce him that if you follow me, I will give to you and you will be the getter of all these things. I often wonder how that played in Jesus' mind. He who had been in the very presence of God of the universe saw the earth created through his own power and sitting back and going, oh, thanks. I mean, it's like, you serious, dude? I mean, it's like, but nonetheless, that's the idea behind that kingdom of this world. It's all about getting. Whereas... It, it, and Paul goes on to explain that. He says in Ephesians 2, he says that they, they live gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and its thoughts. Gratifying the cravings of our sinful natures. <laughs> Sounds like a buffet. Uh, and following its desires and its thoughts. The mantra of that kingdom, I think, is what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15. 32, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. In other words, let's get as much out of this life as we can in the short period we're here because we don't know when the party is going to end. We don't know when the bus is going to stop and we have to get off. So that it becomes a kingdom that's about getting and therefore grasping, and that's what really matters. How much can you grasp? And we hear it in, in statements that are kind of put out there. I mean, people say, you only go around once, so you have to get all you can out of life. Or, always look out for number one, because no one else will. Or, I made mine, if you want yours, you've got to go out there and earn it for yourself. Or, it's a dog-eat-dog -dog world, and only the strong survive, because we all know that it's a survival of the fittest, a world red with tooth and claw, as Darwin described it. One of the things I think we have to understand is that as Christians, when we are trying to communicate our faith to those who are not part of the faith, whether they're completely in some other religious system or they have no religion or they're what we call notional Christians, people who have a, a notion that they basically believe but have never been born again, never committed their life to Christ, that regardless of who we are trying to communicate with, what we are engaging in is cross-cultural evangelism. We're dealing in a culture that's separate. The kingdom of God creates its own culture, and that's really what I'm talking about. It's a culture that is defined by many things, but in particular, it expresses itself or should in the world in which we live through generosity, that there is this giving generosity that we live to give to others and to serve others and to lay ourselves down for the sake of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Whereas the other culture out there, even in its giving, sometimes always has an ulterior motive. 
there's something that I want to get out of it. And how difficult this is, is for example, Jesus says, if somebody wants to borrow from you some money, you should give it to them and not expect to get it back. How good are you at that? <laughs> I'm not very good at that. I'm not really good at that. And, and I, I say that from experience. I, my wife and I have done that for people and, and for us, a sizable amounts of money and somehow it, it just isn't even coming back. And the only way we found ourselves able to break free from really the anger and the angst is to sit down and say, I want to let you know that I forgive you and you're, there's no obligation to pay us back. And boy, were they relieved. The whole point is that that's not something that is native to how we're wired, but it is the path that oftentimes God calls us to. And I, I think we need to understand how, how dramatic that is, how dramatic that calling is, that it doesn't, it's not something that intuitively flows from us. So that if you're raised in the kingdom of this world with all of its philosophical underpinnings, which, by the way, because you're still breathing, you were raised in this world, and you are influenced by this culture, and you have taken seminars and classes and studied and been under the influence of tutelage and the mentorship of other people, good, bad, and ugly, all those things have fed into your life if you have a TV, you even get more feeding into your life. But the whole point is that when you encounter the gospel of Jesus Christ, you are encountering a culture completely removed with a whole different set of values. And the culture, the kingdom of this world will shout at you and say, that's folly and it will not work and you're stupid. And yet faith says, I walk by faith, not by sight. Those are the real challenges. And all I can say is in terms of many of the major decisions that my wife and I have had to make over the years have not been what I would call the most logically persuasive reasons. Even coming to Spokane <laughs> was a... I mean, it was a leap into the dark in a sense because we knew God was saying go, but that meant we left a really good position with a really good benefits and pay to come to a place where I think the unemployment rate at the time was up close around 20%. The first Bible study I started was on Monday morning called an unemployment fellowship. <laughs> Give you an idea of how much money was coming in. <laughs> but most, there were so many people unemployed. I said, the first thing we got to do is get to these guys Monday morning, pump them up, get them believing in God so they can go out there and hit the bricks again and try to find a job because many of them had just simply given up. And I think to myself, you know, that's, and I remember the pastor I was serving in sat me down and said, you know, this is really the stupidest decision. I'll give you a 12% pay raise if you stay. And I thought, 12%, that's, I'd never gotten a pay raise before. That's a lot of money. And I'll do this for you, and I'll do that for you, and this will happen. And I'm sitting there drooling at the prospects. And having bought a house two months before, I realized that if I put it back on the market, I probably wouldn't do real well. And the good news is God intervened, and we didn't do real well. We lost a bunch of money. And everything on the ground, you sit back and go, well, that's not a good idea. You know, it's, it's a little bit easier here it's 33 years later, you step back and go, I guess, I guess it was a good idea. I guess it worked out. 
But at that moment when you're standing there in the kingdom of the world and all the logic, even out of God's people's own mouth who are giving you these profoundly logical and reasonable arguments why you shouldn't do this, and you're just saying they're saying, but I don't know, if I don't do it, I'd have to turn my back on God and close my ears to His Spirit and, and, and do what I feel would be disobedience. So it's tough. And I'm not implying that it's easy. It hasn't been easy. And, and my wife and I haven't sat back there and said, we've just got the joy of the Lord and we trust that God is in this. We really driving to this city. We're going, what the world are we doing? What's going to happen? It's going to be, you know, hopefully we'll survive. I hope you get what I'm saying. You see, because many Christians, I think, many of us here get confused about which kingdom we're supposed to be living in. So I was talking with my granddaughter who's in jail right now, and talking to her yesterday, and she was expressing this very issue. She says, I, I feel all this pressure, and I know where she's getting the pressure from, that I've got to get out of jail and, and uh, you know, pay back all this stuff I owe to the courts and because she was a heroin addict. And I've got to do all this stuff and I've got to figure all this stuff out. And I'm sitting here saying, honey, just slow it down for a minute and realize that you don't have to do anything. God's got a plan for your life. And she said those things. She says, I get so confused because I hear so many different things telling me what I need to do. And I'm not sure which one is God's will. And, you know, and her stream is, her situation is extreme, but so are many of yours. So are many of yours. You, you feel like you, you, God is saying to do one thing, and then you get this pressure and influence from the other side, and you don't want to be stupid, and you want to be rational and reasonable. At the same time, there's something compelling on the inside where Paul makes that comment in, in 2 Corinthians 5.14 where he says, the love of Christ compels us. And when you feel that compelling, oftentimes it's being urged to move in a direction that everybody who loves you, I call them those uh, well-intentioned dragons in your life, they're all telling you, what are you doing? You can't do this. This doesn't make any sense. But at the end of the day, you come back and say, you know, if God is real and if he really speaks to me, then I'm going to step out in faith because I can't live with the thought of feeling like God is saying one thing and I'm afraid to act upon what I know God wants me to do. At least I hope that's your struggle. To a significant degree, this confusion, I think, is the fault of the church. Because Paul gave this warning to the Corinthians in chapter 14, verse 8, where he said, if the trumpet does not sound a clear call, who will get ready for the battle? And I think sometimes the church has been guilty about being very unclear about giving and generosity. Oh, we think we're very clear. But you see, we, we speak about giving, especially the giving of money, in what I believe is often a duplicitous manner. We want people to give to the church because we want to get their money. Is that okay to admit that in a church? You know, I mean, people like me can have these dreams about what, what the ministry can be, and so we out there and just, it's really easy to make people feel guilty about stuff. 
and to put that pressure on them and to bring them to a place of surrender when the real serious question is, is that God or is that just manipulation? It's, it's tempting to sit behind a pulpit like this, to be speaking God's word to people. It's tempting to be manipulative. Now, you can relax. I've never been manipulative my entire life. <laughs> Except when I tricked my wife into marrying me. But anyway, <laughs> but you know, it, the, it's there, is it not? And as I was reading in Deuteronomy yesterday morning, and he's talking about if a prophet comes and he tells you to do something and I have not spoken, take him out and stone him. Too bad we don't use that today. It would clean up a lot of rhetoric. <laughs> There'd be a lot of YouTube things that would go off real quick, a lot of websites that would shut down real quick. But we have the warning that Peter and Paul gave, where they said that, uh, Paul said a, a spiritual leader must not be greedy for money. Peter warned that in their greed, they will make clever lies to get hold of your money. And you see, I, I bring this up because I find it's often a consequence to, to varying degrees that many people find themselves caught in uh, James's proverbial quandary where he said men become double-minded. And when we become double-minded about anything, we live a life that J.B. Phillips des described as being one of divided loyalties. And he says we become instable at every turn. We just don't really know what is God and what is not God? And as is the case with so many other things in the Christian life, there are some things that God is going to force us to deal with, and one of them is how we're going to manage our resources. What do I mean by our resources? Well, you really only have three. You have your time. That's the most valuable one because you can't use it twice. These seconds that you gave, this time that you surrendered to, to listening to this windbag drone on is gone and lost forever. <laughs> You'll never get these moments back. And you have to ask yourself, how am I investing my time? Not in a maniacal sense where you drive yourself crazy, but the whole point is that am I spending my time in a way that really is valuable and beneficial? We, we talk about this all the time. Is it more valuable to pursue a client over many hours or to sit down with your own kids and have a meaningful conversation? Well, it's not a yes-no answer because if you don't meet with a client, you don't get the money that makes you uh, feed the kids that you got. But at the same time, we struggle with this balancing act in our life all the time. Time is a resource that needs to be managed. As we talked about last week, it needs to be budgeted. We need to sit down and say, what can I do? And what is a good spending of my time and not a good spending of my time? And for some of us, it can have huge implications. In my particular situation, and I don't want to put it on you because your life is different, but I came to a point one time when I realized that for me to go play a round of golf every Friday meant that for eight hours on the only day I had off, I was out with some guys hitting a little white ball around a beautiful golf course and having the time of my life, but that's another story. But it also meant that that was time that I didn't spend with my family. And I realized at the point that when my kids... Uh, grew up and were no longer there to be drug up, onto, up on the top of Mount Spokane to go skiing, 
whether they wanted to or not. And then my wife looked and said, you know, to be honest, I've never enjoyed it. I hate being cold. I was left with a choice. I could find some guys like me and say, hey, let's go up and let's go fly down the mountain. But I'd have to do it at the cost of relationship with my wife and maybe even with my kids to some degree. And you begin to realize that you have to budget those choices. Nothing wrong with golf. Nothing wrong with skiing. Skiing is the greatest sport that God ever created for you and me. I mean, let's just be real clear. I mean, real skiing. I'm talking about alpine skiing. But uh, not walking in the snow. You guys can do it. <laughs> right, Dan? <laughs> but I'm seriously... You do this all the time. You have to do this if you're going to live effectively. You have to be conscious of this. And, and secondly, you have to realize that your energy is a resource that you spend every day. How hard am I going to work at this or am I going to work at that? I mean, I had to plan out, budget out this weekend because as I looked at the forecast, I realized if I wait till Sunday morning to get that snow out of my driveway, I won't get out of my driveway. So I systematically, day after day, three days in a row, including this morning, removed the snow because this morning it was only about that deep. I mean, that's just budgeting my time and my energy to be able to accomplish the tasks that I have in front of me. You do it. And that also, thirdly, comes to dealing with your money. It's this resource that God has given to you. That's all it is, a tool, a resource that God gives to you and I in various manager, manners. And we read and equally need to sit down and say, well, well what am I going to do with this? So that when we get into the bigger context of saying, let's live generously, let's live generously in terms of our time, our energy, our money. It's all three of those things. Because God is not simply focusing in on one aspect of your life. He is looking at the whole of your life. He wants you to love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your mind, all your soul, all your body. That it's a holistic dynamic to, to be a follower of God. And as a consequence, we need to begin to look at saying, is there a characteristic in my life that I see in God's? And that is that my God is a generous God. My God is a, a generous God. Now, when we talk about the character of God, we often note many things about Him. I mean, we recognize that He is the all-powerful, the almighty God, the creator and maintainer of the universe. That's a good start. If you can't accept that, uh, you're denying the obvious and you're off obviously running away from accountability to that God. But we can look and say, he, this is who He is. We realize that He is the all-knowing God. You have no secrets from God. You have secrets from other people, but you have no secrets from God. God sees you from the smallest atom to the, to the largest appendage in your body. I mean, he, he knows everything about you. He knows every place you've been, every, every place you've ever gone. You talk about having a history on your web browser, God's history is extensive and try to delete it on your own. He's the all-knowing God. He is the ever-present God. He's with us. He sees it. He's, a, <laughs> he's, he's up close and personal even if you have no personal relationship with Him. He's up close and personal with you 24-7. 
the ever-present God. And he is a just God, which really makes it spooky. Because if the all-powerful, all-knowing, ever-present God is keeping track of everything I do, the last thing I want him to be is just. You know, never say, Lord, give me what I deserve. (laughs) Never say something that idiotic. No, our cry is, God, have mercy upon me. And that's why the other attributes sometimes that either we just look at exclusively or we ignore completely. That's the problem is we don't look at all the parts of God. But we find also that first and foremost, He is a good God. Paul said to Timothy in chapter 4, he says, God is good. Matthew 19, 7, Jesus said, there's only one good, and that is God himself. There's only one truly good entity in the universe, perfectly good, always good, without any trace or hint of evil, and that is God. In fact, he says that that good God in Romans 2, 4 is the God who leads us to a repentance. He's the one who draws us to a place of admitting that he is good and we are not that he is true and that we are also guilty, often guilty of falsehoods. I know they're little falsehoods, but they're still falsehoods. That's why the psalmist would say in Psalm 73 when when Asaph Asaph is bemoaning the injustice, injustice of the world, he begins by saying, surely God is good. That's where we begin. We begin with this concept that God is a good God. That secondly, He is not only a good God, but He is a gracious God. In Ephesians 2, Paul says, you who were by nature children of wrath. What does he mean by you are by nature a child of wrath? He said, your your destiny before you met Jesus Christ was to be an object of God's wrath. The judgment of God was going to fall upon your life. You may be sitting and saying, well, I don't believe that. Okay, but (laughs) believe me, if you reject that grace, one day you will believe it and it will be real. But then he says, but God, but God. But God being rich in mercy because of his great love, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ so that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. He's a good God who is also a gracious God. And it's out of that graciousness that flows his generosity, his riches, Covering my poverty. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, the chapter just ahead of the one we read. In verse 9, Paul says, Remember the generosity of Jesus Christ, the Lord of us all. He was rich, yet he became poor for your sakes, so that his poverty might make you rich. When you look at the Gospels, the one recurrent command of Jesus was follow me. I found some 20 different times where Jesus just simply said to someone, or usually the 12, just follow me. And it's interesting because when we begin to look at what really is 
the call of God upon your life and my life. It's just Jesus again saying, just follow me. As you see me doing, do also. And some of the things he said with regards to generosity were Matthew 5, 42. He said, give to the one who asks you. That if I have the capacity to give, I should give. In Matthew 10, 18, he says, freely you received, freely give. I love it in Luke 6, 38, he throws in a promise. He says, give, and it will be given to you. He doesn't tell us how or how much or when or where, but he says, those who water others will themselves be watered. Being givers, in fact, is such an obvious fact of what it means to be a follower of Jesus that Paul began our reading by simply saying to us, it is unnecessary. Most translations translate the word, it is superfluous for me to write to you. Uh, Peterson put it this way, to say that you should be generous, I would be repeating myself. In other words, this is such an obvious truth that God has called us to be generous people. Being givers is so obvious that we have to wonder why we get all confused about it, which is why Paul wrote the passage that we began by reading today. Because what Paul did is he gave four very clear guidelines about giving, about generosity, that as clear as they are, I think they're not clear to all of us because I just see how people think about this sometimes and realize They don't understand. But the first thing he does is he tells us that giving and being generous is just an act of obedience to God the Father. Uh, When he refers to this as our service, twice in this passage, he says, this is your service. It's actually the, the word diakonia, which means ministry to others. This is ministry, he said, giving and generously serving other people. That is what ministry is all about. And the reason he says we should do it is because it portrays Christ to the world. In other words, if I am trying to imitate the image of Christ in the world, I'm going to be doing things that are congruent with who he is. It's, it's like, do I bear my father's image or not? I mean, it's crazy to me as we're visiting my my son Ben and his kids up there and I I look at his youngest little boy and I'm just dying of laughter because he has every gesture that Ben had. Even my favorite one, when Ben was a little boy, same age as as, uh, Hans is, don't ask me where he got the name, Hans is, he would be in the middle of eating his lunch and he would fall face first into his plate with the food sticking out of his mouth. I mean, just pass out. And we just thought this was hilarious. People would come to watch the kid fall. I mean, he started eating and he couldn't get through the meal and he would just kind of pass out. And he sent sent us a picture the other day of Hans face down in the plate with the same smirks, the the same kind of insecure kind of like, where are you coming from? Look. And I just thought... He looks exactly like his father at that age. Now, it's different with my kids because they all look a lot different than me. No resemblance. Well, you get the point, don't you? I won't belabor it anymore. But we all get it, don't we? God says, if I'm your father in heaven, shouldn't there be some resemblance to me? And generosity... A generous spirit is one of those things that that God gives us to 
reveal the heart of the Father. Along with grace and mercy and forgiveness and kindness and gentleness and meekness, all those things that are described as the fruits of the Spirit working in us, those are the things that set us apart, that mark us, and people look at and say, He looks like His Father. Because one thing you find when Jesus said, follow me, do you ever notice that small children always follow their parents? That's what they do. I know right now you're saying, I've got all these personality quirks. Well, you know, you came by them honestly. You just watched your parents function. (laughs) And you absorbed them without even working on it. And the good thing is you've determined that you're going to be so much different from your parents. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Talk to my kids sometimes. It's It's a crack up. My oldest son was complaining, saying, you know, my kids become teenagers, and they start challenging me and questioning me, all this stuff, and I just started laughing. I said, payback is so sweet. (laughs) It just comes back. It's your turn now. But we need to understand, as as John, in fact, said, he said in, in, in 1 John 3, 16, he says, by this we know love, because he laid down his life for us, and we also ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But whoever has this world's good and sees his brother in need and shuts up his heart from him, how does the love of God abide in him? In other words, he's saying, for me as a believer to see somebody who has a need and just to me close my heart up to that when it's in my capacity to maybe make a difference, that I have to basically suppress the Holy Spirit in my own heart. I have to actively just say, I'm going to push that down and not let it become a controlling influence in my life. As Paul would say to the Ephesians chapter 4, he says, you end up grieving the Holy Spirit, which is an amazing statement in and of itself to me that I have that kind of impact upon the third person of the deity. I can grieve the heart of God. But secondly, Paul tells us that in verse 7 of chapters. 9, 2 Corinthians, each man should give what he has decided in his own heart. And that's why I say that not only is it an act of obedience, but it also is a, it needs to be proportionate. And what I mean by that is that people are to give in accordance to what they feel God has told them they should give. I love the story that Hudson Taylor told once when he was speaking in, in, to a group in England about the work he was doing in China. And he said, after I got done, a man came up and offered me a 50-pound note, which in the 1890s was a significant amount of money. He offered me a 50-pound note, and Hudson Taylor said, sir, I, I'm, thank you, but I do not receive donations. I want you to go home and talk to God and ask him what you think, what God thinks you should give not what you feel right now, because right now you feel the impulse, right now you feel the guilt, right now you feel the pressure, and you're going to do that, and if you do this and I receive it, the pressure will be relieved. I want you to come under the pressure of the Holy Spirit and let God tell you what you're going to give. And later on, he received a letter from the gentleman said, I went and prayed, and you were right, and here's a note for 500 pounds. Was that manipulation? No, it's just simply saying, let a person respond, because on the other hand, it can go completely the other direction. You can feel all sorts of human guilt to run in and try to relieve relieve somebody's difficult situation. And the Holy Spirit may just as well come to you and say, no, if you do that, you're interfering in what I'm doing in their life. 
So it's not an automatic that you're going to just throw money or time or energy at problems, but you're people who are led of the Spirit. As many as are led of the Spirit, Paul said, are the sons of God. That's the objective. So that my giving is in proportion to what? In proportion to what I believe is God's heart, is God's will. And that also comes into what we can reasonably afford. You know, there's some people who have the idea, well, you know, you should give until it hurts. Never understood that thinking. Well, I did understand it. It's based upon guilt. Because the Bible doesn't say that. In fact, what the Bible very clearly says is don't give grudgingly. The word means under obligation or under pressure or to feel forced or hurried. It says don't give into that. When I hear the guy on TV saying, this is a year of a thousand percent blessing, and if you don't get your, your love gift in here by Christmas Eve, then da 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 I hate deadlines. I hate it when people put deadlines and saying, you need to respond to this by X hour and so forth. I don't think they're all bad people, but I think we just kind of slide into manipulation. Because you know one of the best ways God can tell us that some project we want to do isn't of Him? Is by withholding the money. (laughs) When God guides, my pastor used to always say, God provides. Because God doesn't deal with deadlines because God's never late. He also is never early, and I've had issues with that. (laughs) But He's never late. He's always perfectly on time. At the very moment... If God wants something to happen, God will provide. Then he said, secondly, don't do it reluctantly. The word Greek word here, lupe, literally means out of sorrow or pain and grief. It literally is the term they use for a person who is mourning. He says, if you're going to give, don't, okay, here it is, God. You probably need it more than I do. Save it. Being generous and responding to God in one way or another should not feel like a funeral. And you're not making anybody happy and doing anybody favors. Nor, he says, under compulsion. The word here means out of law or duty. Let me go this far and be an extremist. If giving hurts, then something is wrong. We understand in our bodies that if something causes pain, there's probably something that I need to give attention to and not ignore. Pain is a a messenger that tells me something isn't right. If my giving is a painful thing that I have to do, something is seriously wrong. And he goes on so boldly to say that in those cases, God prefers that you would not give because God loves a cheerful giver. You see, the point is that God isn't after your stuff. He's after your heart. He doesn't want your stuff. He doesn't need your money. He needs your heart. And he knows if he has your heart, he has hold and access to everything that you are, to your time, to your money, to your energy. He has access to all of your resources. But does he have your heart? That's why he's saying if you're giving grudgingly and reluctantly and under compulsion and the pressure, then don't don't give. Because in contrast, he says, I want people who give enthusiastically. 
<laughs> enthusiastically is the first term he uses, but he uses a number of really, really active terms. He says to give with readiness, which means that you're looking for the opportunity to give. You understand that being a generous person is the definition of what it means to be a follower of Jesus, and you are actually on the look for where you can be generous. And my wife and I have this perspective. I mean, we don't have unlimited resources, so we can't just throw money at all sorts of things that come around. But especially when it comes to these kind of seasons, we sit back and say, where is it that we feel we can impact what God wants? We can respond to God in a way that makes a difference. Because this is what God wants. I mean, there's an there's a opportunity to be had. He says, secondly, that we need to do it with enthusiasm. Literally, the word means a, a feeling of warmth. This feels good. It just feels good. And lastly, he says it's cheerful, hilarious. Where we get our word hilariously. Now, I don't think somebody's taking literally saying when you give, you should laugh your head off. Ha, 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 ha. Well, if you're Santa Claus, it's okay. But for the rest of us, it gets really weird, you know. <laughs> but it does mean it's something that's joyous and therefore it becomes prompt. You ever notice when something is a joyous experience, you don't have to prompt somebody to do it. I remember taking my kids to theme parks when they were, you know, younger. And boy, I mean, I tell you, they're chomping at the bit and you get through the line and they're rushing to it. They're anxious to experience that joy. God says, you know, and I see that there's this readiness, this excitement, this anxiousness in your heart. It just, it brings joy to God's heart. And then lastly, he said to do it generously. And I put this in here, even though we've been talking about generosity, because he uses the word five times in this passage. And, and, and almost to the point, but he says, we should give and, and we should try to give as much as we can of our time our, our energy, our resources, our monies. We should be, be looking for opportunities to do it because there's a promise associated with generosity. He says, remember this. Now, when you see that word in English translated, remember this, what it means is you're supposed to really remember it. You come here for these deeper interpretations, right? It means don't forget about it. Don't, don't let it slip from your consciousness. Don't, don't overlook this fact. He says, remember this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And whoever sows generously will reap generously. He goes on, verse 8, and God is able to make all grace abound to you so that in all things, at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work and he will supply and increase your store and enlarge the harvest of your righteousness you will be made rich in every way so that you can be generous on every occasion. What I believe that means is simply God says, you know, once you embrace the idea of generosity as a way of living your life, you'll find that God will enrich you in every way that He wants you to be generous. Some people are you know, saying, well, I just don't have anything to do. God has generously given you time. <laughs> Are you using that, that time in a way that could make a difference? And you start playing, God, you've given me all this free time. What can I do with it? Some of you are retired and you're saying, I just want to do something. I mean, I don't want to take away from your fishing, although this time of year it's not that big. But the reality is God has given you a gift of time that's amazing. Are you generous with it or are you just being very selfish with it?
And the same thing is true. If, if God wants you to be a financial giver, he'll give you money. He talks about people who have a gift of giving. God blesses them with lots of money so they can give. I, that, that's, be generous. Paul said, command those who are rich in this world's good not to be greedy, but to be generous. <laughs> don't need to say a whole lot more about that. But he also tells us that we can be generous with our energy. And God has given some of you an amazing amount of energy and creativity. And it's not probably just simply to be used to further your agenda, but to be used by God. Whatever those giftings of the Spirit are, he says, be generous with those giftings. If it's hospitality, then you need to be entertaining. <laughs> if it's serving, you need to find a place to serve. Be generous with whatever God has given you. Be on the lurch. Be ready. Be thinking about how can I use this that a God has given me to further his kingdom. And he says, basically, you just open yourself up to a treasure trove of opportunities and blessings. I'm done. Let's pray. Father God, I just ask that you would just bless us and guide us and speak to us. And God, I've, I've tried to clarify this whole concept. I hope it was clear. I know that, Lord, I was generous by taking 11 minutes and 23 seconds of these people's time above and beyond the call of duty. Lord, I pray that you'd speak into our hearts and that you'd help us to be free. In Jesus' name. Okay, let's have the ushers come forward and take a <laughs> Bless you. Let me just, disclaimer, you people are some of the most generous people that I've ever known. Every time we have a REACH initiative, the people always go away and say, I can't believe how this, this church puts their hearts, their minds, their feet, their bodies, everything where their mouth is. And I say that not to flatter you, but say that uh, I'm not trying to condemn you for not being generous. You are a very generous people, and we are very blessed. I just think there's more opportunities out there that we can discover. And as we come into this closing time and we just worship together for a few more minutes, I invite you to come up and partake of the elements of communion because as we read the passage of Paul in the, to the Corinthians, that Christ, who was rich, gave up his most precious possession, which was his body, his life, that we might live. And every time we partake of those elements, we partake of his riches. We partake of his riches. His wealth suddenly becomes ours. The wealth of salvation, the wealth of a clear conscience, a freedom from shame, liberty from the power of sin and death. And, and most importantly, one day we will stand in the presence of the God of universe and our eyes will be open to an inheritance that will stagger the imagination. In fact, Paul said it's so staggering that you can't even put into words the indescribable gift, as Paul called it that is awaiting us. That brings generosity to our hearts because we want other people to experience that same grace. Amen.